Hello, YouTubers. Welcome back to another episode of uh, Jack of All Trades. Again, I'm here with Kaylin and our producer, Sam. And uh, I thought we'd start off this week with the big news. Tesla, Elon Musk investing $1.5 of their treasury into uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> so uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, it worked out absolutely fantastic for me because I bought a whole whack of a Bitcoin index fund like a week and a half ago. And then uh, I woke up the next morning and Bitcoin had shot up like $10,000. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And then I found out that Elon Musk had bought a whole bunch of it and it made me like 20% on my position overnight. And I had no idea that was going to happen. So I was pretty happy on a personal level. <laughs> Elon making millionaires out of everybody now yeah, with like two different. Yeah, he just put a whole bunch of money in my pocket. So that was nice. But yeah, yeah I think it's interesting. It's a lot of money, man. Like, yeah, it was like uh, eight or ten percent of their treasure, their entire treasury. Mm -hmm. So, so like, I, what, you know what his game plan is? Because I know, like, obviously, you know a lot, of, a lot more about those inner workings. Like, I know he wants to be able to like let people buy Teslas and Bitcoin and stuff now, which is really good. Like, you know, we got Visa, Mastercard, all these things now you can use for Bitcoin and stuff. So, yeah. you know, like, do you know what his like? Do you have a better idea what his whole thought part? Like, is he buying it for an investment or just to kind of have a a handle on like his cash flow? To a sense, I guess. Well, we could get we could get deep into the speculation because we like he hasn't really said he hasn't really said what his actual reason is. I mean, the, the surface level intention is right. Like, uh, you know, money that you you're holding is just dead money. You want to put it into something that could accrue some value. So looking at it from that, but here's the thing: like, so there's a guy named Michael Saylor. Last year, he owns a software company called MicroStrategy. They put they put almost three billion dollars into uh, Bitcoin. They're a software company. They have nothing to do with investing. But Sailor's, um, Sailor's, um, he's basically a rocket scientist. He's got a double degree from MIT. And um, so he understands Bitcoin really, really well. And he was tweeting at Elon like about a month before this happened, uh, telling Elon, you should put some of your money into the treasury. Or you should put some of your treasury into Bitcoin. And, um, and, and Elon's only reply was, I didn't know you could buy that much in Bitcoin. And, and, the, and the conversation just went, went silent. And then, <laughs> and then a month later, the, like this happened. Yeah. So the way Michael explains it, is um he's saying basically dollars losing his ass assessment is a dollar's losing value in terms of inflation about 16 percent a year so if you have hundreds of millions of dollars even billions of dollars as a corporation and your treasury you're doing your shareholders a disservice by losing six per 16 percent of its value every year mm. and um and he's saying the converse is is true if you put it into bitcoin like bitcoin is extremely volatile sure but if you just look at the 12 years it's been around it's gone nothing but skyrocket yeah Right. So if you've got some money there that you don't need to dip into for cash flow, I think uh, it's a, it's not a bad investment for corporate treasuries. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where like it's right now it's kind of in that cross between being like, you know, a day trading stock versus like a long term investment stock just because it is so volatile. So, you know, you, you could buy it today and it drops 20 percent tomorrow. And then, you know, but over over the course of, you know, five, six years or whatever, I mean, it's going to be like I think eventually it's going to get to the point where it is just one of those you know steady growth stocks but right now it's in its infancy where everyone's just all excited so that's that's probably what i think is making a lot of people nervous like i know i talked to talked to a fund manager at rbc and like he he wasn't he wasn't recommending it to any of his clients to buy just because for one i don't think they fully understood what it was still and Good. i read their whole like it was like a 20 page report that they released on it i read the whole report and basically in short they were just saying like it's it's too volatile for us to you know, recommend our clients put money into this. Like we, like they said, they do think it is still like a good growth stock, but they're just, 
you know, I mean, they have a reputation to uphold, obviously. And this is like, you know, for these, for this particular fund, you have to have half a million dollars just to be in it. Right. So yeah, want to tell these level of clients, you know, yeah, throw $200,000 into this. And then, you know, six months from now, they've, it's gone down like, you know, half, and but then it goes back up over time. Right. So they're, yeah. I think it's more so just them kind of protecting themselves, but the article did say that it was, you know, overall, they're thinking it's a good growth stock, but they did touch on to the, um, like we talked about a little bit like the environmental side of things. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that just because you know a lot more about that. But just so you know what they were saying, they were basically saying that they have a lot of the the Bitcoin mining uh, facilities are in China and stuff where electricity costs are very, very low. And they're saying that like overall, like to, to mine Bitcoin each year is it's, it's taken the, you know, it's taken like the energy of something like the size of New Zealand or, or maybe it was iron, like something like that. It was like, you know, it was, like a lot of energy basically to mine this every year. So like what, what's, what's your, your knowledge on that kind of thing? Just as like, you know, mo most people are interested in environmental factors. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Actually, before I answer that, I want to touch on what uh, your, your, your dad's broker, what he was saying about the, um, uh, the investing in Bitcoin being too risky. Right. Uh, so basically what just happened this past month with between sailor, this announcement and, and a whole bunch of announcements, like, um, I think one of the banks, uh, BNY Mellon, said they were going to be custodying um, Bitcoin. So it used to be that there was a reputation risk for an investment fund or any institution to recommend to their clients to buy Bitcoin because you don't want to be the more that says buy this thing and then you know like yeah, that's your right. career, right? So right. it's a career risk. But but now they're saying we just reached an inflection point where a few big people have put their names and their brand out there in support of Bitcoin. So what's going to happen is if Bitcoin keeps going up. The reputation risk flips. You're the idiot that told your clients not to put money into Bitcoin, and here it's rising. And then here are some like reputable people saying, you know, you should have put your money into Bitcoin. I just wanted to throw it out there. I just thought that was interesting. Like the reputation risk thing is is really interesting. Sometimes it's not yeah. about the asset. I know, know that like, they didn't say that, but I mean, you know, any intelligent oh, person yeah. will read, <laughs> yeah. read between the lines and know that that's why they're saying that. Because I'm reading the article and all the all the documentation and logistics and the explanations they're basically saying buy this stuff. It's going to keep going up. But then on the flip side, they're like, we can't recommend this to anyone, you know? <laughs> so I love that. I love that. But yeah, to answer your question about the Bitcoin mining thing, um, it's true. Most of the world's energy is still like pretty dirty. It's coal and whatnot. Um, but there's several research reports that came out recently um, that was saying a lot of Bitcoin is actually, I think 70 something percent of Bitcoin is now mined with renewables, renewable energy. Um, so, I mean, it's still a dirty business, but, um, it's getting cleaner. Cause I remember in 2017, there was a report that it was a big headline and I forgot which newspaper said it, uh, that said by 2020, Bitcoin's power will take up all the power generated in the world. <laughs> and it's 20 and it, and it's 2020. It's not even close to that because, here, because people are ignoring the, um, the capitalist, the market function of this whole thing. Right. Um, these miners are in competition with each other and the best like yeah you can make money just accruing bitcoin but the best way to make money is to lower your cost of operations so as more miners enter the industry everyone's trying to seek an edge on how to get cheaper electricity so that's so that's kind of curtailing the energy use a little bit right okay. so, so there's so, so how does that work sorry just like when because i know they're only going to mine what is it 21 million bitcoin i think is is the total so yep. how, do, how does that work? Like what, what happens to all these facilities and how, how does the power usage and stuff 
continue after that's done? Like, do they all just shut down or? No, it's not mining in the sense that they work to, to create more Bitcoin. And once there's no more Bitcoin to create, there's no more sense to mine because the mining is actually how the network is staying alive. Okay. Uh, what, what these guys are actually mining is a block and you're getting rewarded in Bitcoin, but the, the mining actually is developing a block in the blockchain every 10 minutes. Right. And so like when there's no more, so when there's no more block rewards, which is Bitcoin right now, you get 6.25 Bitcoin per block to do, to create it. Um, when, if you ever reach a time where it becomes zero, all the miners still receive the transaction fees between people sending Bitcoin to each other. Okay. But there, I, I would think their energy usage would go down then though, because they're not doing the actual mining. They're basically just a commission firm at that point. No, because, um, the energy used to create a block is not so much to create the block, but it's to secure the network. So the amount of energy used is actually a part of the security function of the network. Um, okay. I, I, I'm going to shamelessly plug Sam, can you pull on my screen? I'm going to shamelessly plug my, uh, my Bitcoin seminar that I did the other day. So if people want to check that out, it's on our YouTube channel and I uh, go into, and I go into a lot of advertising. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well done. I didn't even, I didn't even notice that you just tried to sell me something. <laughs> yeah. Mining aspect of it, but yeah, it's, um, but yeah, so the, the mining will continue and the power usage, um, will only get larger to a point. And then if we all switch to hundred percent renewables, then maybe not, but um it's unlikely that the energy usage will go down okay yeah yeah but even so i mean like i know i know i asked you that the other day and you made a good point and you were saying you know the i don't know what the right word is like the hope maybe i guess or kind of the expectation is that you know eventually we get to a, a time where bitcoin is is the main currency or or kind of like the top currency and then at that point you know you're reducing your need for like banks and you know atm machines and like all this other stuff that you know, are all over the place. And right now producing way more energy uses than Bitcoin is. So that'll start going down. If Bitcoin's already kind of maxed out and that stuff goes down, then, you yeah. know, we're, we're changing the world for the better as far as environmental goes. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so there's like, you could go down the rabbit hole. There's a lot of debate on whether or not Bitcoin will become a currency because it is getting more and more expensive to do transactions and currents and transactions between currencies should be cheaper free they should really be free right right um so bitcoin's looking more as like a settlement asset for larger institutions like major banks from across nations sovereign nations between themselves like if you, you have a trade deficit between china and um and uh, in the usa how do you settle some of the debts right so you would use something like a bitcoin where, where the transaction fee is nominally pretty cheap compared to the large size of the transaction that you're doing. But in terms of buying a cup of coffee, it's looking very unlikely that Bitcoin will be what's used to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a there's a debate going on, but Bitcoin is more like turning into something along the lines of gold that you can transact with depending on the size of the transaction. Right. Um, and then there's all these second layer options built on top of Bitcoin or even alternative options where it's it's more for it's built for speed so you can buy a cup of coffee at like no cost right um like, so that's I, the yeah I, I, had, I had a question on that i was just thinking of so like you know like we're we're in canada obviously so like you know we like our canadian dollar fluctuates against the us dollar against you know all other countries whatever all the time but that doesn't that doesn't directly affect us in country right so like you know, if I want to go, you know, if I'm making 50,000 bucks a year, say, and I want to buy a $20,000 car, then if our Canadian dollar, you know, drops to 60 cents of the American dollar, 
I can still just go buy that $20,000 car and I still have the same income. So it doesn't, it doesn't really affect me directly in that sense within country. Right. But if, if you're using Bitcoin, like, let's say, you know, like that car is worth like, just to make the math easy, let's say it's worth one Bitcoin. Right. And then Bitcoin's value drops. How do you think that would work? Like, would it still, so like, you know, a month ago you're saying, okay, this car is worth $50,000 and then Bitcoin drops and you're still saying it's worth one Bitcoin, but now one Bitcoin's $40,000. Yeah. So how does so, that work? So I'm going to blow your mind right now. Um, I, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's going to play out this way, but I've read some very smart people talking about it from this perspective, and it blew my mind. I, and I again, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I thought it'd be interesting. So what you're talking about is things priced in USD or priced in Canadian, and then Bitcoin Bitcoin's value fluctuating against the Canadian dollar or the American dollar, and then sorry, Kriton is just turning on for a second. I don't know why. <laughs> It's like it's listening to me. I'm talking about Bitcoin. It's suddenly it's recording. But so um, so so the, the issue is like if if a product is denominated in Canadian dollars, say, and Bitcoin fluctuates in value against Canadian dollars, then how could you buy that thing? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we're looking at a future potentially where things are denominated in Bitcoin. And so the value of the car doesn't change in its relationship to its value with the Bitcoin. If a car costs 0.1 Bitcoin, it will cost one Bitcoin. So what we're now talking about is what's the value of the dollar compared to the Bitcoin. Okay. Right. So it's, it's inverse. It's, so it starts the inverse because right now we're saying everything is valued. The dollar is it. Everything's valued against that and everything changes against that. But what if we reach a point where everything's valued in terms of Bitcoin, 0.1 Bitcoin or one Bitcoin, right? So, then, so how would that work against, you know, on the flip side of that, then how would that work against, you know, smaller purchases? Like, you're, you know, if you're saying that, like, you know, buying a cup of coffee or something like that, that's probably not really going to be something that's ever done in Bitcoin, but maybe like buying a house and stuff will become the norm to do in something like Bitcoin, right? So if I'm, if I'm saying, okay, you know, like you, you would almost have to, segregate what is bought in bitcoin versus what and bought is cash because if you have let's say you have a house that's worth you know half a million dollars and you're saying it's worth you know at this time it's worth 10 bitcoin right so let's just say you know 10 bitcoin right now is half a million dollars so if that 10 bitcoin in a month drops to four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but the cash value of the house is still five hundred thousand dollars no, but see, you're still valuing it in terms of dollars. If that house is 10 Bitcoin, then the house will always be 10 Bitcoin. So what you need to look at is how much Canadian can I exchange for 10 Bitcoin? Okay, so if the house value drops, it's, it's 10 Bitcoin is $500,000. But if the house value drops because Bitcoin drops, then now it's only worth 450000 Canadian dollars kind of thing. Kind of. It's more like how much is everything, if everything is denominated in Bitcoin, then you have to look at the trading exchange rate for what a Canadian dollar is worth uh, in terms of Bitcoin, right? So if like one Canadian, if $60,000 Canadian buys me one Bitcoin, then I would need about 10 Bitcoin to buy that house to buy a $60,000 house, Mm. right? So the house is denominated in Bitcoin. You just have to figure out how much Canadian dollars is worth that much in Bitcoin. So then basically everything, like every single asset would have to be digitized then because, you know, like I could buy a cup of, cup of coffee today for $1.50 and tomorrow it might be $1.53 and then the next day it might be $1.48, right? Right. There's a possibility it won't be in worth, it won't be converted into dollars anymore. It could be like um, sats. So sats is like, I guess, sort of the pennies to 
Bitcoin's um, it's it's a smaller denomination of Bitcoin. So one one sat equals one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. So one Bitcoin can be divided by a hundred million times. Okay. So so that so in the future that cup of coffee might be one sat or ten sats, satoshis. Right. Right. So you are still thinking in that case, then everything would basically just be in Bitcoin. Like there wouldn't be really. Yeah. Dollars. Because what the U.S. dollar attempted to do is what Bitcoin might actually be able to do, which is create a universally accept, accepted unit of account that everything else trades against. Because, you know, you go to Costa Rica, you say, how much is that in U.S. dollars? And I don't even know what the Costa Rican dollar is, right? Yeah. So now it's the same thing. So everything around the world will be denominated in, in, in um, Bitcoin. And then whatever denomination your country is, you're going to be trading against Bitcoin. So if you go to Costa Rica, you go, that's, you know, that's 20 sats. Okay, well, how much is this in local Costa Rican dollars? Right. right. Whereas you go to Canada, it's like, how much is that in sats? And you and you pay in local Canadian dollars, whatever it trades against yeah. in terms of Bitcoin. Wouldn't that almost be a negative, though? Because like if you have, let's say, you know, like, I mean, just realistically looking at it, you know, you look at the powerhouses like, you know, the U.S., China, stuff like that, like the people that are going to be putting most of their money into things like this, then... You know, if you go to like a poorer country, then if you're over there, you know, Bitcoin's all of a sudden doing like what it is right now. It's just going through the roof. Then everything in their country, like a bag of milk for them is now costing them way more money. Right. Just because is, overall inflation has it, gone up, but it's, it's affecting them directly. Uh, but see, it's not inflation, right? You didn't create more Bitcoin. And that's what it's hedging against. Because look, so let's say if that bag of milk costs $10, but everything else that you're selling to make your, your income increases as well. Like if everything's denominated Bitcoin, then it moves in, in sync with each oh, other. So you're saying like you'd be getting you'd be getting like paid in that same function as yeah. well. If Bitcoin started shooting up, my paycheck every week would would go up by the same yeah. percentage. Right. So there's no difference. And there's a huge argument as to why um, countries would start to move towards Bitcoin. It's because what the U.S. the U.S. petrodollar what it what it's done. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the history of it, but the whole system we're running on is called Bretton Woods. It was established right after World War II, and basically all. The, U, the U.S. would tether their money to gold and everybody would tether their, their dollars to the U.S. dollars, right? And so you have, a, you have this system of account across the world that was kind of useful. But ever since um, Nixon took, took, people off, took the U.S. off the gold standard, the U.S. has been printing more and more money, right? So right. what happens is when, when people buy oil from nations, between nations, they're, they're, pay, they're being paid in U.S. dollars because that's the most stable and most accepted money, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is it forces many countries around the world to have large reserves of U.S. currency. You probably heard about this in the news, right? So almost all nations that are using oil need to hold a certain amount of U.S. dollars, especially in terms of uh, in times of downturns, recessions, right? And so what this allows the U.S. to do is they keep printing the money and there's, they know there's continually going to be buyers. So basically the countries around the world has been subsidizing the U.S.'s expansion, economic expansion. Mm -hmm. And what this, what this is doing is costing the other countries their dollar worth because they keep inflating it right. right so now the other countries now have an incentive to go to a bitcoin standard where you can only have so many there's no there's there's nobody that can print more artificially create more so right. now you can truly have fair economic um, activity yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense just the, the concept of you know income like if you're on salary your income every yeah. week change slightly and like yeah. it, it would have to be quite a system in place because it would be like, you know, like, like second to second, the price of it would be changing, right? So like every day you'd be making a different amount of money and every day all your, you know, like you, you'd almost have to be in the store looking at the price of the bag of milk and it would just be fluctuating like at, right in front yeah. of you, right? Yeah, but you know where that's happening for real? In um, Venezuela, Argentina, and I think there's one other country, Zimbabwe, it was in, all in the last 10 years, hyperinflation. So they're actually watching 
their their currency do that every day it would lose 10x its value because oh, yeah. of inflation. I, know, I know they were going through yeah that. yeah yeah so now a lot of the countries like especially venezuela they are going underground to hold bitcoin because they know it can't be inflated yeah so so what's happening there on a micro scale is what on a lesser degree could happen to the rest of the world where it's like we can't trust the value of our currency anymore so that we're going to hold bitcoin and whatever bitcoin trades at against that currency is what i can buy you know what i mean yeah yeah so yeah. the whole concept of it makes a lot of yeah sense. it's just kind of a weird like yeah it's a really weird thing to wrap your head around that that i know changing like that constantly I know you're getting it. You're, you're getting it through a conversation, man. I had to read months and months of economic. It's the whole bunch of research just to kind of wrap my head around it. Information in ten minutes, and I don't have to spend months reading about it. <laughs> yeah, it's trust me. I, I I've spent there like minutes, just hours, scratching my head, going, "What? What? What? What did you say? Like, yeah. how does that work?" <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> I remember you texted me the other day this big like novel about exactly how Bitcoin mined and all this kind of stuff, and I'm reading it and there's like. Man, that's this is gonna take a little while for me to wrap my head around that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I put it this way: like, if a guy like Elon Musk, who co-founded PayPal, a bunch of companies, and created were vertical takeoff and landing when the best engineers and NASA said it couldn't be done, when that guy backs Bitcoin, I'm thinking maybe there's something to it. You know? Yeah, that's like what I've been telling people too. I'm like, okay, you know, all things aside, like as of right now, you know, we have Elon Musk puts a billion and a half dollars into Bitcoin. You have all these other guys putting a whole bunch of money into it that are big fund managers. Like you have Visa and MasterCard now are accepting this. Like PayPal is going to start accepting this. Like, I mean, I don't know how much. Like how much more indication that you need that this is a viable, a viable thing, right? It's it's certainly become a class. It's an asset class that probably is not going to die anymore. Whether or not it becomes what it aspires to become, like who knows? But yeah. at least at this point, it's not like 2017 when I'm got into it and it's like you don't really know um you don't really know like what it is really and you don't know know if it's going to go to zero so th th that's why there was like excuse me and so i think that's why the days of like the 80 percent collapses are done because those 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 periods was, it was literally like musical chairs the last one the last one you know that doesn't get a chair gets left out right yeah. so it's like at some at some point the rally's going to end and you get left out and this thing's going to become nothing but i think now it's not so much musical chairs so it's like we, we know it's going to be something we just don't know what it is going to end up being yeah and i think now at this point i mean there's there's so many people now that are looking looking to get into it that you know any any kind of half decent dip is just going to be met with so much buying pressure that it's you know it's like it's like you just said i mean we don't know if it's going to go to the moon or not but it's to have like a big collapse like they did in 2017 i think is probably not really going to happen unless yeah. something else like significantly economy changes i actually um i think i had some stats i wanted to pull up uh, about buying i don't know if i saved it but it was about the amount of institutional money flowing into bitcoin right now mm. um it's never it's never been higher sam can you pull up my screen i thought this was interesting so this is um bitcoin treasury so this is the amount of publicly traded companies where you can verify where they have to report their assets okay. this is how many that currently hold bitcoin in their possession Okay. So micro so micro strategies that company that I said there's a software company is run by um the the um the uh the rocket scientist guy they've yeah. got nine almost ten billion dollars in in Bitcoin oh sorry their market cap's not nine they got one they got a billion dollars in in Bitcoin total value is three billion dollars now so he's tripled his investment in under a year that's it right so, 
So yeah, so you, you, you got to think there's some other corporate CEOs kind of fomoing right now, looking at this thing, going, "Son of a bitch." <laughs> yeah, it's always right? tricky, though, man, because like you know, like that's what I always tell people. We're talking about this now, but there's so many things like this that that happen all the time, and they don't turn out to anything, right? So it's really easy to sit here and say, "Oh, you should have bought it a year ago," but eh, you know, I mean, the stuff always goes crazy, and most of it comes back down. Yeah, there will definitely be a pullback i just don't think that i think the 80 percent pullback days are over but yeah. if we look at some of these names you got square square square's got 50 million of their thing in there um a lot of these are um trusts i i'm actually into this one galaxy digital i've got i'm into i i'm i own them they actually did uh they just did a 2x for me oh yeah nice so they're but they're actually a viable business though so they're a the guy started it in 2017, and he, he wanted to create a business that linked institutions to Bitcoin. So he's not a trust or anything like that, but it'll help. So like, let's say you're, you're, you're um, a hedge fund, you're a high-risk hedge fund. You, you, you offer high returns. So one of the ways to do that is you can short Bitcoin because it's so volatile. Right. But where do you get the Bitcoin to short? So these guys will loan you Bitcoin to short at like a 10% interest rate. Oh, okay. That's cool. So that's one of the functions they do. They, they do market making services. So if you want to open up a Bitcoin exchange, you know, the Markham Bitcoin exchange, yeah. you could do that. And, and if you need a liquidity provider, these guys will come in there and they'll do the market making for you to provide liquidity. Okay, that's cool. Right. So they do a lot. of So there's there's some real companies building businesses behind this thing. Oh, yeah, for but, sure. There is, yeah. Well, it's like, even, you know, like, like even, even like you look at the weed companies this last week. I mean, I know they, they basically all just like squeezed up and everything but still like you know a lot of them two years ago they were garbage but now like a lot of these things are really reputable companies right so it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if that's kind of the next big thing like if biden ends up actually federally legalizing it then like you know whichever one of those guys becomes the the lead the lead uh, cannabis company has got potential to go through the roof basically yeah i saw that aurora a whole bunch of them Tilray, yeah, I showed you the Tilray. CRON, uh, Tilray, what are some of the other ones? CGC, I just know all the tickers, I don't know the company names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> SND, yeah. And all those, yeah, they all went like, they all went crazy, right? But I did a bunch of research into that because like I'm, I'm thinking that if, you know, if Biden does end up federally legalizing, that's probably going to be the next big, you know, sector that runs up. And uh, basically like from all the research I did, it's, it's kind of almost a shot in the dark at this point because mo like, most of the companies are, are, they're not like, you know, exactly similar, but they're all kind of right along the same wavelength right now. So the bottom line is that it's, it, it really just depends like which one of them ends up taking hold of the whole industry. And that's going to be the one that goes really big. Right. So as of this point, it's a little bit of a gamble. Like you're just kind of taking a shot in the dark, which company you think would be the best. But I mean, it's, I think, I think there's gotta be a way to kind of limit your risk a little bit. Like if it if I was investing in one, I would probably look for the one that's the best funded because this isn't a game of attrition, right? Uh, up yeah. until the point where it is legalized, like you're you're basically just burning cash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you find the one that's probably the the best, well funded, and probably has the the largest reach, market right. market domination. So I mean, those are probably the safe bets. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same thing again, right? Like from what was it a few years ago? Like before they legalized it in Canada, it was the same thing, right? Like all those same companies were. We're running up, running up, running up, and then as soon as they actually legalized it, they all tanked because everyone's just buying the rumor and then they sell on the news, right? Oh well, I actually have a a, a comment about that because I, I read a stat because I remember my best friend bought it, uh, bought into a bunch of the wheat stocks, and I was just investing back then, no technical analysis, whatever, right? And I was actually getting pretty jealous of his returns because I'm like, 
I'm pretty happy with my 20%. This guy's doing like 60, 80, like in one year, right? So I was good. So I started looking up into this uh, uh, industry and I, to try to see if I should invest in it. And I was like, I can't do it because no. all the, pro- all, no, because all the projections that I saw around that time was saying by last year, the, uh, the, the, what was it? The North American, the, it was North- the supply North- was going to be like insane for the amount of consumption. That was the biggest yeah, thing I didn't like. The, yeah, they overestimated the demand. So they're like saying um, the Canadian market will be worth about $4 billion as of 2020. And and what happened was by 2020, the entire North American market was under $4 billion. So they kind of overshot demand by, by quite yeah, a lot. By, by a lot. So it was just yeah. like a massive surplus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so that's, that's, that's why it all got tanked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I couldn't get though. And I don't think any of them are profitable just yet. So it really is a battle of attrition. I know that's the thing. Like any of them right now, like, I mean, if you're going to buy any of those for a long-term investment, it, it's, it's kind of like a gamble, right? Because you don't know like what, what Biden's actually going to do. But, but so, so from a trading perspective though, are, are they low float or how, how do they look? Um, they, I don't know how they're, let me just check really quick. I don't think they're that low float anymore. Like what's Tilray? Like Tilray is still 66 million float. I think Aurora oh, wow. Cannabis is higher. Yeah, Aurora Cannabis is 160. Um, Cron Wait, are, is 190. I, I can't remember. Are these trading on OTC markets or like or no, like? No, they're all Nasdaq now. Get Nasdaq. Yeah, like they're all like they're all like you know they're all like legitimate companies now. Like they're not like garbage like they were years ago. But right. a lot of them are still pretty traded. I don't I don't like trading them personally just because like. You know, when there's when there's seven companies that are all kind of running in tandem, like on the same percentage moves, it's just like, I don't know, it's 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 really tricky because you get into a play and it's perfect. And then all of a sudden, one of the seven starts reversing and then the next one does and the next and then like it just becomes a chain reaction. And it just uh, it's like know. a follow the leader kind of yeah, thing. It's too, much, it's too much, too much of a headache for me. I like the ones that are just the outliers. That's pretty funny. Yeah, no, that makes sense, though. You want to limit all outside interferences, right? Yeah, just keep it as simple as possible. Like I don't want to be stressed. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know what? A lot of the a lot of the Bitcoin companies trade like that too. Like they're like a proxy for Bitcoin, basically. Yeah. Um, I I found it funny. I saw, I saw some tweets that that was actually pretty hilarious. They're like, so you know, Bitcoin. There's there's still trusts out there, but there's no ETF, so most people can't in, invest like index funds and pensions can't invest in like Bitcoin, right? right? But they're like saying, as of as of Elon's announcement, indirectly. How many index funds and uh, and mutual funds and all of them have invested in Bitcoin via Tesla? Because <laughs> they're included <laughs> in the S and P five hundred, right? Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> it's like all oh, you suckers indirectly. Own- you're investing in Bitcoin now, <laughs> <laughs> right? I thought it's hilarious when when they said that. Hey Sam, can you pull up my screen real quick? That's funny. I know. I I, I thought that was hilarious. So this is um. Grayscale Investments. They hold currently hold about thirty billion dollars worth of crypto. Twenty billion of it is um. Is in Bitcoin, they're and they're traded. Oh, I'm sorry. Are they on Pinks or OTC? That's GB, GBTC. Right? Yeah, GBTC. Yeah, they're they're OTC right now. Um, so, but here are all the institutional exposure to the GBTC. Like these are real Ark Investment, Kinetics. These are real um, um, hedge funds, and they and this is how much of their exposure is in uh, GBTC. Okay. So like. The volatility of Bitcoin is up, but it's down significantly from where it was just three years ago because of how much 
institutional money is now tied into this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Institution, like, like even, like even on my side of things, like for, for small cap trading and stuff, like I don't like trading anything that's over, like, even when it gets like 20, 20% institution owned, it kind of starts to fall off my radar. Yeah. But just because like, you know, as soon as you know that there's big companies involved, they're going to try and hold stocks up. Right. So the yeah, more so institutions that are in something, the better it is if you're long. So, so you've personally seen it, right? Because I've I've seen a lot of people claim it, and I uh, that it's a it's a size thing. As soon as it gets to a certain size, it, the volatility just kind of levels out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just got, yeah. That's just like for everyone's general knowledge. That's kind of something to watch for. Is if you're if you're shorting something, then you want institution to be as low as possible. And if you're longing something, the higher it is, the safer it is, because you know there's a lot more companies backing it that aren't going to let it crash. Right. That's really so interesting. One of, the, one of the many little things you can look at. Hey, have you um, have you heard of this girl, a uh, lady named uh, Kathy Woods? Her name's been in the media like a lot li- lately. I don't think so, no. So I, I, uh, I about a week ago, I po- posted a story on my Instagram. I said she's probably going to be this generation's um, Warren Buffett. Okay. So Warren, for like I don't know, like a thirty-year span, was great at looking at, at assessing the economy and companies within the economy and markets, and like just picking winners. And lately, obviously, he's, he hasn't been doing well at all. Um, Kathy Wood has been on fire for the last few years. Um, she's got like fifty billion dollars uh, under management, assets under management now, mm. and she just keeps he just she just keeps hitting home runs. And even I thought she was just lucky about a year ago. I heard her name and I thought she was lucky because I'm like, well, she invested in Tesla. Okay, so did I. Big deal, right? Yeah. But but the last few times I've heard her talk on a podcast, and it seems like this, she actually understands where the future is heading. And she's always like getting getting ahead of it. So she's into genomics. She's into gene editing. She's in, into three D printing, Tesla EVs. So she's heavy into the future, right. and she's just been like killing it. And I think I literally think she's going to be this generation's, our generation's uh, Warren Buffett moving forward. Hmm. That'd be a tough man. Like that's that's a lot harder than people think. Is to you know, there's so many companies out there to pick to pick those specific companies based on all their fundamentals and all their management styles and everything like that. That you know, not not only do you have to believe that whatever product they're producing really is going to be a big impact in the future, you also have to believe that they're going to have enough funding to get there and that their company's not going to fall apart. Like that. That's tough, man. Like, that's really hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. And she's in, like, some really cutting-edge stuff. She just recently announced um, uh, that she's going to create a new fund that's going to be based on space exploration companies. Oh, man. Like, she's, like, 10 to 15 years out, man. She's, like, way out there. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. That's you gotta be really smart to do that kind of stuff. Really smart or really ballsy. Like Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> like but any, I mean, any, any investor has to be a little ballsy to a certain degree. Yeah. I, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing, right? Risk is almost has a correlation with returns. <laughs> low risk, low returns. Like so yeah. you kinda have to, right? I know. Well that's that's you know, that's why everyone's like, Oh yeah, you know, you put your money in an ETF or put your money just in this bank savings account. It's like it's like, well, yeah, you know, you could do that and get your, your guaranteed money, but you can make 10 times that in a year if you just, you know, do a little bit of research, pick your companies, take some time, and, but you're risking. Like, you're always risking more, right? You're yeah. always opening yourself to way more risk. Yeah. Sorry, Kaylee, you're frozen. That's why, again, no matter what, it always comes to management. Oh, you see me? Oh, again? Uh, you're frozen. But you, I can hear you, but you're frozen. Oh, but you're back. Yeah. No, yeah. Oh yeah, it's hundred percent. There's like a that's that's what you pay. Like that's the risk premium, right? To get into something now, you you pay the cost is risk, but the upside is the dollar value increase that could potentially happen, right? 
Exactly. Um, think about, you know, think about like you play poker and stuff, right? Like think about like Dan Bilzerian. Like I hear guys talk about him and it's like, it's like, oh yeah, he's a poker player. He said he made like, you know, he's made like $150 million in like one game. I could do that. I'm like, I'm like, man, no, you couldn't. Like you're going to throw like 20, 30, $40 million down on the table. If you have that in the first place and risk that on a hand of poker, like you got to be at a whole nother level of confidence to be able to risk that kind of capital. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, well, there's two things there. Uh, Dan actually might be a fraud. I, I don't know this, but it, it, a bunch of things came out in the last six months that started to tie some facts together. Like the, around yeah. the time where he said he won his millions um, playing poker was also around the time the trust that his dad set up for him was was unlocked. And so they're saying that's where the money came from, not playing poker. Because some, yeah. some actual pros have actually watched him play poker. They're like, this doesn't make any sense the way he plays. Oh, really? Yeah, and when he gets, yeah, and his dad actually went went to jail for fraud too. Oh, really? Yeah, so they're like it kind of runs the family. Yeah, it that, wouldn't, that it wouldn't surprise me to be honest, but I mean, you know, still, I mean, regard, you know, regardless of what whatever he is, it's the same thing, right? Like you know, same with like stock market and stuff like that. Like even past couple of weeks, like any of the the one or two guys you hear made a whole crap ton of money on GME. It's like, yeah, I know, but like you know, you had a hundred thousand dollars. How come you didn't just throw your whole hundred thousand dollars into GME and turn into a million? You know, it's cause you're, you're risking a lot of money. Oh, let me tell you the guy that started, I forgot what his name was. I was watching him on his YouTube channel, a video that he did a year ago about the GME play. Okay. So he put 50,000, $55,000 down, I think on a bunch of calls. At one point he was up to 14 million, huh. but because but because he was part of the don't sell, don't sell crowd, I think it went down to about a million before he cashed out. Uh, that sucks. Yeah, I know one of, one, of my, one, of, one of the guys I know through, a, I don't know him personally, but one of my buddies at work was saying that his friend bought a whole bunch of uh, SNDL, like the, the weed stock, at like 60 cents or something like that. And then it went up to like five bucks and then it crashed. Now it's crashed down to like a buck or two or whatever again. He's like, no, man, I'm not selling. Like, it's going to go back up. I'm like, oh. Should have taken your money when you had it to <laughs> like yeah. returns in three days. Yeah, it's like that's like one of the trading psychologies. It's like you gotta get rid of this idea that if a stock goes up and goes back down, you didn't lose that <laughs> you didn't actually lose that amount of money, yeah. right? Yeah. So you gotta sell in little pieces, a little bit here, all the way up, all the way up, and then Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they cause they think like if a stock goes from a dollar to five dollars, you've made four dollars, but you really haven't. You have to realize that gain, right? It's just yeah, I always joke around with people when they tell me that, you know, like, you'd be like, oh, I'm up, like, I'm up this much money on this stock. I'm like, like, you're not up anything until you sell it, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that's like one of the biggest disciplines for trading, right? Yeah, I know. It's always hard, though. You know, you see those those paper money numbers, so to speak, and, you know, got to gotta play it right. I think we want to go into like some of the trading techniques or whatever, but I just want to add this one little thing just because so, we're on the topic of uh, poker for a second there. Okay. I, recent, I recently learned something that I didn't know existed, but you could buy, I forgot what it's called, but you could ba basically buy a share of a poker player's winnings. And there's, a, there's at least two companies out there now that lets you do that now. You log on the website, you or me, log on the website. Um, if the poker player is like my favorite poker, poker player, is, player is Daniel Negreanu. If he signs up to the site, you could stake the guy. You give your $1,000. He needs a half million dollars to play the World Series of Poker. You're, you buy 1% share or whatever it is, right? And you get a share of his winnings if he wins. So, so they have this thing that's going on now. 
Um, it's a huge business now. And what I've noticed is that a lot of the better poker players aren't playing poker anymore. They're actually betting on other poker players. They realize that they can get better returns, kind of spreading, they're hedging their bets. It's almost like VC. It's like I have, I fund 10 players. One of them just has to win the World Series of Poker and I'm up quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You could, yeah, you could fund like five different guys. And as long as one of them wins, then you're, you're up kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was like they, people are just finding new ways to finance things now. It's like, so if you're a poker player, you don't have to bankroll yourself. You, you don't have to bankroll yourself anymore. Just log onto the website. And, hey, you know, just give me a few bucks. Let me see what I can do. And there's there's no repercussion if you lose. So, uh, well, I mean, you lose their money, but you know, some of the, I, I don't think um, I think you have to understand that the, the risks involved, right? Yeah. I, I remember there was something about the SEC trying to step in there, going, "Hey, wait a minute, are you guys selling securities or what is this?" Right? <laughs> but apparently, the company won the won the law case, won the case. Like really? they, they, they proved that they weren't selling securities. So I don't know how that worked, but they're, they're operating right now. It's like a tiny little hedge fund almost. It's a little bit, yeah. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I just thought that was funny. Huh. That's kind of cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. touch on like, uh, like just, you know, what type of trading style for, I know we were talking about this before the podcast. We kind of want to get into like different types of trading styles and like which ones are good for you and your personality and how much money you have and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I, I just got into day trading, like just the quarantine. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, um, I'm still, I guess I'm still trying to find my style. I'm definitely not a day trader. It gets too hectic for me. I can't get in and out of position in one day. I'm just not comfortable with the size of the position I have to take in order to make a decent return. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get my way there into like a swing trader where I can move, where I can sit in there for like a two to five percent move over the course of like three to three to five days, maybe a week. Right. Um, that's been working up until a few days ago, and I haven't touched my account because I for, I was like undefeated for like an eight week period, <laughs> and just just a few days ago I my my one my one bet I lost four hundred and fifty US. And the one following that and lost another 200. So I'm just like, all right, I'm stepping back. Yeah. I'm stepping back. Did you have, like, did you have set stops though? Or you just kind of didn't like how far it was going down? Uh, so I, I don't know. You, you, so you tell me. Like, so, so, <laughs> so, I, was, so, so I, was, I was trying to get it. Well, I'm trying to refine my technique, right? So, I'm, so I was trying to get into the habit of trying to stopping, stopping out a little bit earlier or stopping out more often and getting back in better, right? right. Um, so the thing went against me to the point where I was uncomfortable. So I'm like, you know what, rather than writing it out, because where, where I stopped out, I was like, if it goes any lower than this, I could do like a 10% drop. So this is like the danger zone, right? So I would have set my stop there anyway. Right. So I was like, you know what, I just market executed, got out of the position, took a 450 loss. I'm like, let's just see what happens, right? The funny thing was, had I waited three days, it would have gone back up, but I would have made 5% instead of losing 5%. Right. So I, I don't know how to read that, you know? Yeah. Is that, are those swing trades based like purely on technical analysis then? Or are you like... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I'm trying to learn. Cause like, I, I don't really have any desire personally to like research companies specifically. <laughs> so like, I, I'm trying to start working my way into swing trading just based on like technicals. So they'd be super short term, obviously, you know, check to make sure the guys don't have earnings coming out like tomorrow or like news or like whatever you can find out just to make sure that there's not going to be some catalyst that's going to mess with your play, but you know, just kind of shorter term swings like that. But yeah, like I, for like just back to the original point though. So people are starting out, you know, I think a lot of different things kind of go into what type of trading you can do. I think the main things are how much money you have, what your what your personality type is, I think has a big factor on that. 
And then, you know, what your, what your life is, like, what's your job? What do you, what hours do you work? Like, you know, what are your expenses? All that kind of stuff. Right. So like, do you want to, do you want to kind of touch on that for yourself? And then I can kind of touch on like for, for investing, swing trading, like, like, let's say, you know, I have, um, you know, I have like 3000 bucks or something to play with. And that's like, kind of like, you know, that's as much as I can put in and I can't really put in any more than that. And I want to be, you know, an investor. Like, what would you say? You want to be an investor with three thousand yeah. dollars? I would go all in on one company that I researched the hell out of. <laughs> and uh, well, because I, I, I say that because that's kind of what I did. So yeah, I mean, I put most I put most of it into Tesla. Um, so I started out with my 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 RSP. I started out with seven thousand five hundred. Okay, uh, initially, and that that thing is twenty x. Right, but that, Nine was, years, though. that was all through invest like actual like long term six month year long five year long investments right yeah the well i haven't yeah it's uh well it's my rsp so i can't get out of the whole thing so i've just just been oh. growing it but but it's been but it's taken over nine years um and I, but i but to be fair i've added another seven thousand to it so about 14 14 five was my total investment into the into the thing right and and right now it's just a hair over two hundred fifty thousand, or right. is at two hundred fifty thousand. okay um but the most of that was um, getting involved in Tesla. Apple was for was for a little while my biggest earner, and plus it was a dividend stock, so I had really good returns on that. Okay. Um, and then I put and then I cashed out in Apple completely in 2016. It went to Tesla 100 um, percent because I was waiting for a few things to trigger that that signal. Tesla announced their Model Three ramp up. It, this was the the lower price model because for a while they were just kind of a niche car maker, right? Right. Like so, I don't know how big a business could be doing selling a hundred fifty thousand dollar car, but when it, you're bringing that down to sixty, seventy five thousand, it's a little, little bit more um, marketable, right? Yeah. So when they announced that, I was like, okay, let's let's do this. Let's go all in on Tesla. And since then, that's been my my main driver. Right. And 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 that goes to the guy. It goes back to the guy that I learned from Peter Lynch, who was saying like, you don't need to you don't need to have a lot of winners in your, in a career. He, he even says like, even as a professional head fund manager. You just need three or four 10 baggers and that is an entire career. That's a 20, 30 year career. Yeah. Right. So, so when he, he used to, what he called 10 baggers was a cup with a stock that would do like a 10 X or 20 X, whatever. Right. Right. So, yeah. so yeah. So I experienced that you find your 10 bagger and you just ride it. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I know like, I know as far as, you know, your, your personality type and stuff like that, you always say like, I don't think I could do day trading cause you always get like, you get riled up by guys on the internet and all that kind of stuff. And you say like, it's like too quick and stress you out. You need to kind of like relax and look at the slower plays and stuff, which is like, it's, it's, it's all, it's not like the complete opposite of me, but like for me, like, you know, like nothing really phases me. Like I, I never get stressed out about stuff. I'm like super mellow. Like I can always cut my losses and, but I also have no patience. So like doing, <laughs> doing long-term stuff, like I always like, I'll be in a position and I'll be up a decent amount of money and it's been like two weeks and I'm just like, like man, I want to play something else. I just want to, I just want this money to be used in something else. Right. So I'll get, I'll get out of it. But like, yeah, I think, I think the first thing that people really need to look at for, you know, getting into trading and stuff is, is really like, you know, what, what's your availability? So if you're working, like if you're working full time during market hours and you're, you know, you're, say you're like doing a labor job where you obviously can't be on your phone at all, then that kind of, that rules out any kind of day trading, right? So now you got to look at either swing trading, like short term swing trading or investing, right? So like if it was me personally, I would probably get into, I think depending on the type of money you have, like if you got, you know, 
say 40, 50,000 bucks or whatever, I think you're probably pretty safe to just get right into investing, start trying to find those, you know, long-term big gainers and stuff like that. But if you're on the lower end, you know, you're probably going to want to start getting into like shorter term swing trading to build your account. Um, it kind of, I, I think per, like, I don't know, you can disagree with me, but I think it kind of personally like goes downhill. Like investing is, is probably the best if you have a ton of capital and then below that would be kind of shorter term swing trading. And then at the very bottom would be day trading. So if you only have like, you know, 1500 bucks, I would say you're probably going to want to start off like day trading if you can, because that's really the only, you know, if you have 1500 bucks and you put it in, you know, Tesla, even though it goes up quite a bit, you're, you're really not making that much money. Right. Where you could, you could, you can multiply a $1,500 account a hundred times in a year if you're day trading properly. You know what? I uh, both agree and disagree. Um, I agree because it's, it fits exactly with your personality. I disagree because it would go against me. If I had 3000, if I was starting off and I had $3,000, I would give myself a 1% chance of, of being able to be successful with that and a 99% chance of losing it by the end of the year. And, and just, day trading, you mean? It, yeah. trading or even swing trading. Okay. Because I'm a I'm a slow learner, I, I and I have to really dig deep into the whole thing before I kind of get it. I don't I, I don't really get things right away, and so if I was trying to learn trading while trading, I would definitely lose. I've lost everything, yeah. You know before I got it. So which and, we both have, to be honest. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like two three accounts. So that's right. That's right. That's right. But in terms of like investing, like. You, if you, if you, unless, in terms of investing, it's less technical, or more your your ability to research and comprehend whatever it is you're trying to invest in, right? Like, right. if I had three thousand dollars right now, and actually, I have a good example of this. I put four thousand dollars into Galaxy um, just under four weeks ago, and it's done at two x in four right. weeks. And but I was do, I did that because I understood Galaxy's business model and I understood they kind of tethered to Bitcoin, so Bitcoin's performance was going to go up. And like wow, they pulled back to the six point eight level uh, on the Fib, and I was like, this is a perfect entry. Bought it at eight dollars thirty nine cents. Now it's almost at twenty bucks. Okay, and is that is that something you're like you're holding as an investment though, or is that kind of like a short term swing trade for you? I so I own that both in my TFSA and RSP. So my RSP, I don't plan to sell that until the end of the year when this entire Bitcoin bull run ends. Okay. But my TFSA, I'm going to continue to trade in and out of position. So I sold half. It went up about 60%. I now it's up like 2x. So I kind of regret that move. But from from a strategy position, that's still a, the smart thing to do. So I don't, I'm not yeah. sad about it. Yeah. So you have like you have like half in each one of your accounts, basically. Yeah. So I have half in each account, and then when Galaxy went up um, 60%, I sold half of this position in my TFSA. Right. Just to, just to have some more cash flow. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, so you're so you're still kind of doing like shorter term swings, but you're you're still like you're still investing a lot of time in researching the company and everything, right? Because that obviously makes you feel more comfortable. And like, yeah, even from my from my side of things, I always understand that because you know, like, I get I'll look at these, you know, I read articles and stuff like that, or you know, somebody I know, like you know, even you for example, like you'll tell me something's a great investment, but for me to for me to buy and hold something that somebody else has just told me is a good investment for a really long time, like it's really hard because if I see you know a 10% dip, I'm not going to know what's going on because I don't know the company. Right. So yeah. that's, that's why you gotta, I think, I think a lot of it really comes down to personality type, because if you're, if you're the type of person who, you know, you, you're just, you, you want to just look at numbers like, and you like spreadsheets and you like quick action and stuff like that. Like that's all the stuff that I kind of really enjoy. So that's, that's why like day trading is kind of my main focus. But if you're kind of like, you know, if you're more like you or you really like to understand something, you like to know, 
every single aspect of it, you know, that makes you like, that obviously makes you way more comfortable in the position. It's probably a lot more relaxing <laughs> and you can, yeah. you can do those longer term trades. Right. Yeah. And I think that's actually probably why I think day trading is completely impossible for me and swing trading. I can kind of do it's yeah. because I trade on fundamental changes in like either the business model or the, whatever the investor perception of the whatever right but when you're day trading there's it's just technicals man yeah, <laughs> like it's yeah. it's some of some sometimes it's just nonsense you know it's a, usually nonsense yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> just it's nonsensical moves and you have to i i have really i have a lot of trouble fighting my way through that yeah it's funny though because like there is like you know like obviously i've been doing this for almost like four years now and there's so many different like little things that you have to look at that are so specific to certain patterns so like like, for example, like, you know, I've, I've started shorting a lot more recently um, just because, you know, with my schedule and stuff like at work, like long trading is something that I need to really watch like all the time. And I, just, I can't do that at work. So I kind of had to adapt myself a little bit. Um, but it's, you know, when you're when you're long trading, like if you're looking at those midday trades kind of thing, like they're, they're they are really nice and slow. Like you get a nice long, you know, hour or two build up in the pattern. You get a good setup gives you time to kind of dig into the stock, make sure there's no dilution, you know, make sure all the, all the technicals are good on it and stuff like that. And then you can enter a position like pretty, pretty relaxed and comfortably to get like, you know, a half hour, hour long play out of it or whatever. Um, and then obviously if you're trading in the morning, it's like all that stuff just has to be planned for the most part at like the night before. Right. So like you're, you're still taking your time to, you know, like take a few hours the night before and figure out what you want to trade the next day. So like, even though the things are moving really quick and it's like, it's kind of chaotic looking and you know, you, like you've seen some of my trades, I'll be, I'll make like, you know, 20 different trades in 15 minutes, right. On one stock. <laughs> but like, I've, I've done all the research the night before. I know the big picture. I know all the details that I need to know for those types of trades. So like for me, it's not stressful, right? Like I can, I can throw a good amount of money on that and know that, you know, if the stock moves like 10 cents, I'm going to be down $200. But that doesn't really stress me out that much because I'm, I'm, you know, you're, you get very confident in these specific types of setups. Like it's just, it's just when you, when you can really focus in on a, like a very, very specific pattern, just get really, really good at one thing, one time a day, you know, all the details have to line up perfectly. It really becomes a lot less stressful than people think it is. It's, it's when you're trying to do everything at once. So like you're trying to watch like nine different things. You're trying to do some longs here, some shorts there. You're trying to hit quick moves here. You're trying to do an hour trade here. Like, when you start getting into all that stuff, it just starts getting like, you know, really stressful because you're in something and you don't really know why you're in it and it's getting kind of messy. But if, if you, you know, it's, it's, it's really the same as what you do. I mean, you know, you know what you're good at. You're good at researching companies. You're good at those long-term swings. You're, you use your technical analysis as backup to get into positions in the right time. And for me, like I'm, I'm focusing really on like, you know, one specific setup. So if all the parameters, you know, my, my, I don't know, I have like 10 or 10 or so different things that need to kind of line up for me to take a trade. And if all those things line up, you know, it's, it's, I can just, I can sit there and, and relax and, and take the plays and there's no stress to me, even though to somebody watching, it would look like it's complete chaos. <laughs> so I, I, I think the last time you showed me one of your plays, like you were riding this thing, like you were, you were, you were sizing your, your short positions in and you were like sizing out and you just, you were just playing that whole like move, right? Yeah. And I, I, I was wondering at any point that that, price actually move against you and if it if it did what were you thinking yeah like i think i know the one you're talking about so it was one where i think like i started short i can't remember the, the prices but like i started short at say like 250 and then it went up to like three dollars or whatever and i was like shorting 10 cents all the way up 
And then like my first covers were at like 260, right? So my first short was below those covers. And then I kind of shorted the next pop and then got a couple more below. But I, I had shorts that were lower than all my covers. And you were kind of right. like, oh, you know, you, you asked me, you're like, oh man, like it looked like you were kind of fighting that thing. And I was like, no, it played out like perfectly to plan because you, you, you size everything accordingly, right? So like I might have like my first entry, it might just be in case, you know, sometimes the thing just pops a little bit and just fails right away. So at least I can get a little piece of it, right? But if it goes all the way up, that's where I'm like my max size is. That's why when you see a lot of these plays, like if it goes up a little bit, I'll get, you know, two or three pieces on and then it'll tank. And I'm like, ah, man, I wish it went up higher because I wanted to get full size on it, right? But you'll just, you just kind of spread your orders out. So I might have like 100 shares here, 200 shares here, 300 here, and then maybe like, you know, six or 700 at the very top. So I'm kind of like sizing into it. That way, if it only gets halfway up, I'm still okay. And I'm, 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 I'm getting into full size within, you know, maybe 10 cents of where I would cut it. So, okay, so I was going to, yeah. So I was actually, gonna, I was actually going to ask that. It's a really good thing you brought up. I, I always wanted to know how you sized in. So I didn't know if you were sizing in like thirds or quarters, or now you, it looks like you're doing like an escalation, like a pyramid kind of thing where it's the, the biggest size at the top. Yeah. So, so how do you decide how much, like how many times do you, do you size it? And then, and then how do you, and is the sizing like the, the whole piece that you're willing to invest? Like if you're willing to do like a thousand dollars in this trade, then you do, do you, you know, how do you divide that? Uh, it's it, like, I don't really do any math on it. I kind of just do it by feel, like just depending on like what the price of the trade is. Like I don't really like trading anything that's over like, you know, six or seven bucks kind of thing. I like the lower price stocks. So like even just, just trading that specific dollar value, I, I already have a kind of a good feel on like what, you know, my losses and wins are going to be on specific movements. But it depends. Like I might have, you know, I might have, I might have one level that I'm really interested in. And maybe I'll, I'll, and then there's another level that's, you know, a dollar higher than that. So maybe I might size in fully to this one level. And then if it, if it still pushes over that, I'll just cut my loss right there. And then I'll start sizing into the next line. And then I'll ride that back down to make all the profits. Or, you know, I'll, I'll maybe, you know, maybe there's, there's, there's really nothing, like there's no levels in between where the stock's opening and where my first line is. I might just do three orders that are all within like a few cents of each other that's full size. Because I'm, I'm like, you know, if, if I'm sizing all the way up like that, it's, it's usually because like somewhere back on the chart, I'm seeing like, just like small levels of support and resistance. So I just kind of want to take like a little piece in there just in case they do end up tanking it. But if, if I'm not really seeing anything, if it's just kind of like, you know, here's the line and then there's just nothing and the stock's opening down here, then I'll probably just put most of my size right at the top because I'm thinking if it does start to go, there's nothing in that area to stop it. So it kind of depends on the play, but usually what you want to do is, is, you know, try and size up on the way up. And like, even if I get those starter positions, like let's say it pops, you know, 30 cents in the morning and it gets my first starter position, which is like, you know, maybe 10% of my full size. And then it tanks down like 20 cents. I'll still take off like half of that little position there anyways for, you know, 20 bucks or whatever it's going to be. And then if it just tanks after that, maybe I'll sort of pop or whatever. But like, I always want to take a little bit off if it comes back down. And then if it just goes straight up, it'll just go like hit all my orders. And then, and then you just kind of cover on the way back down after that. So, okay. So, but do, so do you, you do predetermine how much money you're willing to put into this play like, yeah. like the, of all the combined sizes. So that's predetermined. Yeah. Like I don't determine like what my like dollar value investment is going to be. I just predetermine like how many shares. So like, if it's, oh. so if I'm playing, like if I'm playing over, like, you know, if I'm shorting into like a dollar range kind of thing, then, you know, maybe I'll use like, I don't know, a thousand shares or something like that. So if it goes 10 cents, you know, like in my lot, if I'm going to cut it over like 
you know, 10 or 15 cents, then I know my max loss is like a hundred or 150 bucks. And if it tanks, you know, you could make, you know, five, six, seven, a hundred or whatever. But if it's, you know, if it's only, if I'm expecting the stock to shoot up like, you know, 30 cents and then tank 15 or 20 cents, then, you know, maybe I'll use like two or 3000 shares kind of thing. And that just okay. depends on like, that doesn't really have anything to do with the investment. Cause you know, a, a stock that's a dollar, depending on the range of it, it could be, I could be looking for a 30 cent move or the stocks, you know, maybe the stock's $3 and I'm still looking for a 30 cent move. So I'll be using the same amount of shares on both of them. I see. Yeah. So then do you have a predetermined amount or range that you want to exit with like profit? Um, I have like, I have targets cause like I'll draw in all my, all my resistance and support lines all the way down. And I usually just kind of try and cover like just above those. But, uh, I usually just kind of like try and play it down to the bottom until I see the thing start to kind of reverse. So like, I'll just, I'll, I'll take off like, you know, 80 or 90% of it into like, into my lines. And then if it just, you know, if it, if it ends up kind of just fluttering along, I, I usually hold a, like, you know, a, a 10 or a 20% of it, like something really small. And then if I see it kind of starting to reverse, I'll just, I'll just take it off where it is. And then that way, if it does just have like one big final tank, at least I can get a piece of that. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Like, I gotta... like, like the moves that I play is it's, you know, it's, it's my niche. It's something that I'm, I'm getting really confident now. Like I've only been shorting for, you know, four months or whatever, really, like really consistently, but like, it's something that I've, I've, I've gotten like much better at very quickly. So like once, once I see that initial move happen, like I know that I can just, I can just hammer on size and like, I can, I can short huge amounts of shares and make eight cents and then make, you know, 12 cents and then short some more and make five cents. Like it doesn't need to move a lot after that big first move, because I know that, okay, now my thesis is correct. So now I can just pile this thing on and and I just need, I just need little movements. Like when, whenever you see my charts, like the one I sent you the other day, it had that big spike and then like, it was like a 30 cent move and I, I shorted and covered like on that particular move, I made like 20 bucks or something. And then on all the other little ones where it just like kind of fluttered off over like 15 cents, I made like, you know, a hundred times that much on, on just those tiny little moves. Right. Because that's when I know that the, the trade is working for me and I've already gotten at least a little bit up here. So it just kind of holds my average up. Interesting. Uh, so I know you, you like, you log all your trades on like a spreadsheet, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever, have you ever taken a look to see like, what's the relationship between your risk and your returns? Like how, like if you sized in $3,000, how much of that would be profit? Like, have you ever taken a look at percentage wise? I, yeah, I do to a certain degree. Like it's, it's kind of weird. Cause like the ones that I'm playing now, like it's, I don't want to say it's contradictory, but it's a little bit different to like what I did in the past. Like in the past, when I was doing, when I was doing long trades, I was like, okay, like, you know, here's where I'm getting in. If this happens, here's where I'm cutting it. And if I get in here, like it should go to there, which is, you know, a four times reward to my risk. And like, those are the only plays I would play. So if I thought it was only going to go one time or two times, then I wouldn't take it. But those particular plays, they were, they were really only working like maybe 60% of the time. So it kind of had to be like that because if it was any less than that, I wouldn't be making money. Right. So I needed, I needed like a pretty decent reward to my risk because it was really only happening, you know, like just over half the time that these plays would work out. But like on these, these short plays that I'm doing now, they're like, I mean, you got, you got to like, you got to know how to like narrow it down properly to find the specific plays. Like I'll, I'll have like, you know, 10 stocks I'm watching and, by the time I'm ready to play them, I only have like, you know, one or two that I'm actually looking at and everything else is off my screen, but they're, they're pretty much like a one-to-one -one risk reward for the most part. But 
the likelihood of them playing out the way that I want them to is like 90 to 95%. Right. So it still is a better risk reward, not necessarily yeah. on the dollar value, but on the, you know, on the, the regularity, I guess you could say of the, of the patterns. I like that. So it's like, um, slightly higher risk in terms of how much money you're putting at risk, but the consistency of the wins kind of negates that risk. Right. Yeah. So like you might I'm, lose. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm looking to like, you know, potentially make like, I don't know, a hundred bucks, like my, my risk might be around 120 bucks or something, but nine times out of 10 or nine and a half times out of 10, it's going to work. Interesting. So I wonder if, I wonder if that's where I'm struggling with. Yeah, it's kind, of weird, it's kind of weird for me because like I was, you know, for for three years, I've always been like, oh, you know, if it's not like two to one, then it's not even worth looking at. Right. But yeah, like, none of these are really two to one. It's just the consistency of the actual pattern that makes it a lot more appealing. I'm wondering if I'm having the problem or the or what you had with uh, when you with your first one where you're like you're taking a smaller risk, but you're you need like a two or three or four X play because like right now I'm waiting for like a two to five percent play on my positions. And like I'm winning consistently, but my one loss is like pretty big for yeah. me, right? So I'm wondering if I should just put more money down at risk and just playing smaller price moves because I can get more consistent yeah. winnings. Yeah, like like especially like if those specific plays, like you know, if you're risking two percent and it goes two percent, like you know, if nine times out of ten that play goes two percent, and you know, only a few times it goes, you know, like five ten percent, then even if you just start taking those and just only taking the 2%, but it works nine times out of 10, then you can just go way bigger size on it and just only aim for the 2%, right? That's, that's kind of like what I'm doing now. And like, honestly, like it's been, it's been mentally a lot better for me because I'm like, I've only had one loss in the past three weeks and I've traded like, you know, pretty consistently. So it's, it's, it's become a lot, like it's a lot less draining because it's like, even though, you know, if you're, if you're doing the other ones, like, yeah, you know, you're still making money and everything, but you know, I'm, I'm winning today and then I'm losing tomorrow and then I'm winning today and then I'm losing tomorrow. And like, you know, the money keeps going up, but it, like just the fact that you're losing like consistently is kind of draining. So, you know, if you're, if you're finding something that's, that's basically a profitable play, you know, for two weeks straight before you have one, one loss, it, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot better for the confidence. <laughs> yeah. You know what? This might be worth a try. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to integrate this. When I uh, get back into it next week. Yeah. You should track it, man. Like whatever, whatever plays you're looking at, like just, just get a handful of them that you've already done and, and see like, you know, you, you might find that 80% of them always go 2% and then sometimes they crash, but only 20% of them go to your 5%. And in that case, I would say just, just size them right the hell up and just only ever aim for 2, 2%. So you're only, you're only doing one-to-one -one risk reward, but you know that 80% of the time you're going to get that, that reward, right? Right. And then the play becomes a good a good ratio. The only thing that screws me up is because I'm trading futures. The futures price is um, not consistent with the market price uh, because there's several different markets for Bitcoin. There's several different exchanges, and they all kind of have a little bit vari variability in prices. Right. And so the futures price is kind of like an average of all theirs, plus a little bit of a premium because it's a future. Okay. And so like. Uh, when Bitcoin's pumping, the difference might be one hundred and fifty dollars. So okay. it might be a full percentage point difference. And then when it's um, when it's kind of moving sideways, the difference might be fifty bucks. So mm -hmm. like I, I'd have to figure how that works out in the formula because if the difference is one hundred and fifty bucks, just to make sure I hit a buy order, I'd already be taking away some of my profit, you know, because I have to be a little bit conservative to get in. 
So I have to but, figure that out. Yeah, I'm sure you could work that in though. Like as long as it's yeah, like I don't know. I mean, like both of them work. I mean, if you're you're obviously still making more money, like aiming for your five or ten percent with your two percent loss or whatever. But like, I mean, for for me personally, it's just been it's been a lot easier on the mindset just to like be consistently winning. You know, even though like the returns are pretty similar, it's it's just the fact that you're consistently green makes it you know just builds the confidence and. I mean, confidence allows you to play more size and be a little bit more aggressive and stuff, right? So that's definitely helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember, like, I, I don't know when I realized this, but I, for a while there, I was thinking, like, you really need a string of winners to build up that confidence in order to build the confidence to stop yourself out as well. Because sometimes it's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, once you have a, like a string of wing, wins, you have the confidence of knowing that you can win and you can make money. So then every once in a while, when you have to eat a loss, you're like more comfortable with it, right? Yeah. And you can just say, oh, whatever. And like, you know, just walk away and come back tomorrow because you know you're still going to make money, right? Yeah. I, th I wonder if that's what screws up, I guess, when people are starting up because you don't have the confidence to know that you can make it back. So then if you're, you've got a winner, you like, you maybe want to take the take the profit early because you're like, I don't know where you're going. I don't know when I'm going to make my next dollar. Let's just get out. And hundred percent. I did that for years, man. Like I would be up like, you know, I'd, I'd be up like 20 bucks on a play and I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm green. And I would just take it right away. And then the thing would just, you know, we'd go to the moon. I'd be like, Oh, I could have made $200. And then the next day I'll lose 20 bucks. And then it's just like, you know, Oh my God, but it's, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, you know, I, I don't really know what I'm doing yet. So like I have some money, let's just take it. Yeah. You know, which think, is the exact opposite of what you want to do. So what do you, you think this is like the biggest thing traders, people getting into trading should know to realize that you just have to go through this pain period. This, you know, everybody does, man. Like I haven't heard the old, I think the quickest like success. Well, I don't know. Like, I don't know about like on the investing side or whatever, but like the quickest success stories I've heard for day trading are like maybe four to five months where guys became like, oh yeah, like I had a, $3,000 account and after five months, like I was consistently profitable. And then in my first year I made like 60 grand or whatever. Like that's like, that's like the quickest I've ever heard. And those are people that are literally like, you know, they're 20 years old or 19 years old. They're still living at home. They don't have a job. They're doing this full time every day, you know, 18 hours a day, watching every video, reading every book, like a hundred percent immersed in it for five months. And that's the quickest I've really heard anybody that can pick it up, right? I mean, like you hear, I've heard stories of guys, it's like, oh yeah, you know, he just like joined this chat room and like after his first month, look, now he's making like $30,000 a month. And then like, you know, down the road, like there's one guy I'm just thinking of in particular, I'm not going to name him or whatever, but like that was his story is like, everyone's like, wow, this guy just joined. He's like, yeah, like, you know, new to this, blah, 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 blah. And then like, you know, now we're a few years down the road and I was just reading like a little um, like biography thing he made about himself. And he was saying that like, he basically, he did it for three years before he joined that chat room. So he did it for three years. And like, he's like, yeah, I read like 40 books and I spent like, you know, I spent like eight or $9,000 buying like these educational videos. And, you know, I was paper trading for a year and a half. And then I joined the chat room with my real money. And then he was in the chat room for a month and then started making like bank. Right. So like the guy was like, he'd been, he'd been training and studying hard and investing a lot of his time and money into himself for like almost two years before that point so so there's a little bit of an asterisk on uh time when, when he started trading <laughs> so, asterisks i've been trading with real money for a month but 
I've put $20,000 into education and been studying and day trading paper for two years. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That reminds me of like the, one of the stories. I don't know if I sent you this video, but it was because uh, I, I love watching videos about the floor traders. So I think oh, yeah. growing up, that was our, that was our, what we thought day traders would do, would do like people at the New York Stock Exchange and the CME just going, ah, you yeah. know, just like, so there's this one guy, he said, um, he, he busted three times. And so you, in order to buy a seat at the CME, it cost you a quarter million dollars at the time. Uh, so it cost you a quarter million dollars to be a, to be a, to be able to be a floor trader. Okay. The other option, if you can't afford a seat is you can lease one for $60,000 a year. Okay. And so he couldn't afford one. But he started as like a clerk, so he would be the boy, he would be the kid taking the the the, the sell sheets from the uh, the broker and then kind of like reconciling everything, the paperwork on the back end, right? Mm -hmm. So he kind of learned his way through that. And then when he finally saved up enough money, $60,000, he bought a lease to one of the seats. And uh, he, lost, he lost that inside of a year. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy that he learned from was like, don't worry, I'll spot, don't worry, kid, I, I like you, I spot you. So he gave him another $60,000. He, he said he went in there, he started doing, he started stringing together some wins. And then once again, he blew it all up. Mm. And then the third time he had to go to his, he, he said he was lucky. Um, he, he went to his aunt who was like very well off and he, and he, and he kind of went to her and he said, listen, I bust, I'm going to be completely honest. I busted twice already. I don't know if I can make this into a career, but I think I've got it figured out. And, and he even said like, she kind of knew that this is probably money she'll never see again, yeah. <laughs> but she just kind of gave it to him. Yeah. And then he took it in there and he finally made it work. Yeah. He figured, he figured it out. Yeah. You, you got to have such a passion for doing that kind of stuff, man. Like anybody that wants to do this full time, you have to have such a, like such a drive and passion to just work on it like constantly and like understand it. Like I, I, I was like on that same point, it's the same idea, but like one of the day traders I like, I remember him telling like a similar story. Like when he was in college, he's just like, he started day trading and he's like, he just got like obsessed with it. And he's like, I want to do this so bad. So he like, he put all the money that he had saved for college into his uh, into his account, which is like six or seven grand, blew that up in like two months. And then he was dating a girl. So he asked her for money. So she gave him like 3000 bucks, blew all that. So that neither of them had any money. <laughs> and then, so he's like, so he's like, I was just like, I was like, I didn't know what to do. So he's like, I took a little bit of a breather, like took like a couple months, really studied. And then he's like, I, I went back like over the Christmas holidays at like dinner with his family. And he like, he asked all his cousins and his parents and like his aunts and uncles. And he was able to like, they each gave him like 500 bucks and he was able to scrounge up like another like 3000 bucks. And then from then on, that was like, that was like his way up. He made like a hundred thousand dollars that year. And then like, it was just, you know, it was just gravy from there, but exact same thing. He, he just blew it and blew it. And then he started taking loans and he's like, but you know, he's like, you're just obsessed, right? You're like, I have to make this work. Like, yeah, I think you, you have to have that questioning mind. It's like, what am I doing that's not working? You have to analyze every little thing and you, and you have to keep going back to losing until you, you finally figure it out. Yeah, exactly. It's just like any amount of confidence or ego you had, it just like, it just kills it immediately. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. I bet you, I bet you most traders have like the exact same story. Just maybe stretch out on different time frames. Man, I read a book. It's called, uh, it's called Momo Traders. It's a really good read for anyone that's interested in day trading. It's like, it's like a, it's another interview book with like, I don't know, 15 or so like big time day traders over the past like 10 years. And like every one of their stories was the same. It was always like, you know, it was like two to five years that they were studying and blowing up accounts and everything was slow. And then like finally something just clicked or like, you know, they were like, like none of them really were working in and around like stock trading or anything like that. They just like, it was just something they were interested in and figured they could figure it out. And 
yeah, like they, they all had the same story. They started with like a couple thousand bucks and just blew it up a couple times, took some loans, like figured out how to make it work. And it's just funny. Like it's, it's always the same story, man. Like any of the guys that are successful at it just have that insane passion. So I think the message here is like for anybody that wants to get into trading, it's like expect to lose whatever you could have put in now and expect to lose it many times over. <laughs> like go, go into trading and like, depending how much you're going to put into your accounts. I mean, like, get ready to lose like at least like five to 10,000, depending what you're putting in your accounts. <laughs> so I think, I think no fault of their own, but I think a lot of people are attracted to the idea of trading because of the returns and the, and the supposed low amount of investment. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like we were saying earlier, like, you know, what would you rather do with $3,000 trade or invested? I think 99% of people would say, let's trade it. Yeah. Right. But I think 99, <laughs> but I think maybe 98 out of the 99% will lose. Yeah. at least the first time lose that first batch of money yeah for sure yeah i think every, everybody when they start like you know trading like when we say trading we're meaning like you know day trading or like really short-term swing trading you get like your first account you get all excited you lose all your money and then you feel really bad about yourself you try again and then you slowly lose your money <laughs> and then you feel really bad and then you say okay maybe we should learn how to do this properly <laughs> that's hilarious yeah. That's hilarious. Like you, and I, you and I have the same story too, right? Yeah, it's funny. Different personalities, different styles, but exactly yeah. the same story, basically. Both of us blew up two accounts. Like my first one went really quick. The second one kind of bled out a little bit slower. And then the third one was when I was like, okay, you got to be careful now. <laughs> my, my story was always the same. I could win consistently small amounts, but when I blew up, I blew up big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, that was never my problem, though. I was, I was always like just kind of like bleeding out slowly. Which was almost more painful. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I think, like, I guess, yeah, bleeding out slowly is painful. And then me, who's like, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not. See you later. <laughs> I, I fooled you. <laughs> Fake. Yeah. That's funny. I think we're, we're good to wrap it up. This episode It's a pretty good one. Yeah, I think that was good. Covered some good I stuff. I think I want to start a thing where, like, the end of every episode, I want to insert a little bit of wisdom in here because, like, I always try to take notes on some stuff. Um, this one's from the investing side. Okay. I, I, so, in terms of research, it is really important to not just question the result of the research, but also question who's doing the research and their methodology. Um, because I saw this video, and he's a good, he's a successful uh, fund manager, but he was saying he he read this university study. Um, that he liked and it was basically comparing the returns of treasuries versus securities over the period of like 150 years because it's never been done before so they're, they're trying to answer the question what would you have made better returns on over the long term if you put all your money into treasuries you know four percent return whatever it is and mm -hmm. versus stocks right and the conclusion was um you would have made more money um putting your money to treasuries okay. and the way he was talking about it, and I was like, I just wasn't convinced, even though the study was, the data is conclusive, right? But the, there was something that bothered me about the result because uh, it, it just doesn't seem right to me. Um, and so I started thinking about, well, what, what could make this thing wrong, right? If the data is correct. And if you think about it, none, nobody's going to live 150 years. So if, the, if, if, the, if, the, if what you're taking away from that is I should invest in treasuries versus stocks, that's the wrong conclusion because you're not going to live to 150 years, mm. right? And the other fault of the study is what company survives 150 years? You have the startup phase, the maturity phase, and the sunset phase, right? Yeah. 
So what you really want to do is capture the stock during maybe its its startup and its maturity phase, that big block, the big arc where it's profitable and making money and gaining market share. And you want to avoid, which is inevitable, the time when it's sunset, when it's just losing market value and just slowly fading away, right? If all companies have this arc and you're looking at the entire, all the arcs of the companies, of course, you're going to lose money if you, if, you know, over time, they're all going to go to zero. There's no company that's lasted forever, right? Right. So the answer is, yes, that's true. If you can invest 150 years, sure, put it in a treasury. But since I'm only going to be investing maybe 30 years, I don't, that study is completely useless to me. It yeah. tells me nothing. Yeah, I, I, just like really quick before we wrap it up here, I have another good point on that, just on the, you know, on the bodybuilding side of things. I remember I was, I was reading um, one study about, uh, it was basically training to failure versus like reps in reserve. So like training like rate to absolute failure, you can't move it anymore. Somebody's got to lift the bar off your back versus like, okay, yeah, that last rep was pretty tough. You know, leave like one or two reps in the tank kind of thing and then finish your set. And they were basically saying like reps in reserve was like no different than training to failure. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. So I was like, you know, I, I, I'm bigger than guys that don't train to failure. <laughs> so that doesn't make sense. So I, I started doing some research into it and I looked and, and basically the, the, um, the study group that you used it was like a group of like a hundred men that were, they'd never worked out before. They were basically just like sedentary because they wanted to get like a really base result. And they said that like, you know, they got like everybody on average earned 10% of, you know, of muscle over this period of time. So immediately I'm like, okay, you know, these guys are saying they're training to failure and they've never worked out before. Like it took me like three years to realize what failure really was in the gym. Like, I thought I used to go to failure. There's no way that these guys know what like hard training is, right? So I'm like, this whole study is completely flawed right there. I can't hear you. Your, your mic's cut out. <laughs> All right, David's gone. We'll just, we'll, we'll wrap it up here anyways, guys. <laughs> Thanks for watching. Remember to like and subscribe. <laughs>